This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. We are in the middle of Season 6. My name is David Daltz and I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith. And I teach at Loyola University's Institute of Pastoral Studies. And I write a monthly column for St. Anthony Messenger Magazine. I'm here with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York. And he's an assistant professor of systematic theology and spirituality at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. And he's a columnist at National Catholic Reporter. Every couple of weeks, we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. Dan, as always, it is great to see you. Igualmente. <laughs> we also have special bonus segments for all of you friends of Frank who support the show by donating each month on Patreon. Every couple of weeks, we put a bit of bonus audio or an extended discussion or an interview onto the Patreon site. And if you'd like to hear them, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfx. Pod. That's Francis, the letters F and X and the word pod, and you can become a monthly supporter of the show. Please also follow us on Twitter and Facebook at FrancisFXPod. Once again, that's Francis, the letters F and X and the word pod. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing FrancisEffectPod at gmail.com. That's effect spelled the English way, E-F-F-E-C-T. Today we're talking about three topics. We are talking about the recent Supreme Court decision on the public charge and we're also talking about the Iowa caucuses, and we're talking about continuing our series on the sacraments. We're going to be talking about confirmation. But before we do that, Dan, tell me how you are. David, for our listeners who have been concerned, and I appreciate their concern in prayers, my back is somewhat better. We're on the mend. I've even run a little bit, so things are, things are looking better physically. As we were commiserating off air, this week Personally, and it sounds like for you as well, and this week nationally has been what we call a circus. It's just one thing after another. So um, I would call it a cluster, not a circus, but that's just me. This is a family program. <laughs> it's a goat rodeo, as they say. Yeah, things are good, but I think the kind of craziness of the season is indicative of the time of the semester we've, re we've arrived at, which is uh, the middle of it. And so it's, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of things happening. You know, classes are, are chugging along, but uh, midterm exams are coming up and all that fun stuff. So, yeah, that's that's what's going on here. You know, a bunch of traveling up ahead, uh, heading to California for a board meeting uh, actually tomorrow as we're recording this. And we'll be, as this episode is released, on my way to Helena, Montana, to Carroll College, where I'll be giving um, a lecture. And so you can find information there if you're a Montana listener or want to head that way. Tomorrow, which is Thursday, I will be giving a public lecture. So uh, look online and social media for more information about that. But David, how are you? I'm doing well. I am speaking to you and I'm speaking to the many from a completely rebuilt studio here at the William Adams Studios. And so I'm still, as Dan is talking, I'm messing with buttons and knobs and, and kind of trying to adjust sounds on the fly because I haven't had a chance to completely road test everything yet. But basically over Christmas break, I took all the equipment apart. I tested all the signal paths. I rewired a bunch of things and put new connections together with new components and new equipment. And I'm really excited about it and we'll see how it works. I think so far it's been good, but we've had a couple glitches here and there. But it's good. It's good. Yeah. From my vantage point, there are a lot more blinking lights everywhere. Yes. And the blinking lights help me to make sure that everything is functioning the way that it should and that all the sounds are doing what they should. 
I guess the other things that are going well with me, my family has been watching a TV show called The Good Place. I don't know if you've been familiar with this show, but uh, I guess a, a couple weeks ago we we thought that The Good Place had ended and we watched what we thought was the last episode. And then we, we kind of had feelings, me and my wife and my kids, and then we went about our lives and then we discovered that, in fact, we had missed the ending. And so yesterday we watched the ending and man, we all kind of came unglued. It was really good. Really good. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. I, I know I have friends who are big fans of it. I watched a couple episodes on the first season and, and it wasn't really clicking with me. But who knows? Down the road, I might I might have to pick that up. Yeah, I mean, uh, as, as a person who deals with theological subjects and religious subjects, I think that you will find aspects of it that are enjoyable. And so here's the thing. Like these comedy programs that are made by a guy by the name of Michael Shure, who is the creator of The Good Place, they all tend to riff off of other shows. And so Nietzsche, I think, once said that, you know, history first goes as tragedy, then as farce. And so uh, The Office was a riff on a TV show called The Wire. Parks and Recreation was a riff on a TV show called The West Wing, which we've talked about. And uh, The Good Place is a riff on a TV show called Lost. And it, it doesn't say for sure that it is, but you can tell if you've watched these dramas that, that this is what these comedies are pulling off of. And in each of these cases, with the possible exception of The Wire, which is just perfect in every way, the comedies do a better job of kind of hitting the marks than the dramas do. But in this particular case, I, I found I, I was a big fan of Lost, and I found The Good Place to be very enjoyable for the same reasons that I really loved Lost. And it sounds like it ended way better than Lost did. Yes. Lost had had some problems in yeah. its ending. Yeah. That's what I've heard. I've also not watched that. It's been lost on me. Wow. So much to bring you into the fold on. But I have seen The Warrior, and I love the phrase Hamsterdam. So, <laughs> <laughs> and we have very regularly made references to The West Wing. So, yes, yes, so, yeah. which is a, a favorite, a favorite, a favorite. And yes. have you ever watched The X-Files? <laughs> have I ever watched The X-Files? Does the Pope go to the bathroom in the Vatican? <laughs> I am a huge, huge, huge <laughs> fan of the X-Files and insanely huge. Okay. I'm a child of the 90s yeah. and uh, yeah, so extremely, extremely big fan. And my a shout out to one of my best friends from high school, Joel Lacqua. He and I were very, very devoted, devoted, devout, whatever, fans of, of the X-Files. Yeah. My wife and I, is my, it's our favorite show of all time. And so... Oh, how am I just learning about this now? This yeah. is why we get along. I guess so. But uh, at some point after we get done talking about the sacraments, we should take... We should take a season and just kind of talk about, I don't know, pop culture, The X-Files, something like that. Season finale, season two, plus the first two episodes of season three, Anazazi, Paperclip, The Blessing Way. Those are the best three episodes of the entire series. Look at you. I, I And I, I come unglued with Memento Mori, that's that, oh, uh, yeah. that story arc. For those of you that don't have any idea what we're talking about, just go and just watch Google the entirety it. of The X-Files and yes. you, you'll, be, you'll be blessed. So uh, I guess with that, we should probably get into the show. So you're listening to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with Dan Haran. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Haran, and I'm here with David Dahl. Every couple of weeks, we get together to talk about news, current events, various things, including the sacraments, all through a lens informed by our shared Catholic faith. In late January, the Supreme Court, the other SCOTUS, as I call them, by a 5-4 to four vote, lifted an injunction on a controversial new rule put into place by the Trump administration known as the Public Charge Rule. The rule is part of the Immigration and Naturalization Act, which makes most classes of non-citizen ineligible for a green card if they are found, quote, likely at any time to become a public charge, unquote. Many who work with immigrant populations have been concerned because this expansion of the rule would specifically include refugees and those seeking asylum. The Supreme Court's decision does not settle the matter, but it has been seen as the latest in a series of steps by the U.S. government to enact policies that are especially hostile to the poor and the vulnerable. David, what are we to think about this? Well, it's interesting to have this happening because it's just part of the onslaught that has been going on. And uh, in addition to the public charge rule, we also have the issuing in the past few days of even more countries that are now on the so-called travel ban list. The sum of all of these is making it really, really difficult for people to 
come to the United States in search of any kind of protection, any kind of asylum, any of those things. And so that, for me, is—so it's of a piece, but again, one of the dangers that we're experiencing is a Supreme Court that has been, you know, sort of pretty dutifully stacked for the the sake of kind of conservative causes— is well-placed now to render these kinds of decisions. So when when organizations try and stop the imposition of rules like this particular rule, the public charge rule, and we'll talk in a moment about what all the public charge rule does, uh, the, the court is well-positioned to suddenly execute the support of these kinds of very draconian measures. I have many thoughts about this, but just on this point about the court, I mean, you're somebody who watches the court closely. I know it's a personal interest of yours, decisions and so forth, particularly at the intersection of religion and, and public square. I'm curious. I mean, there's a lot of criticism, you know, when there's a, a left-leaning majority in the court, people on the right will call it kind of a politically activist judiciary. It, it seems to me, though, that this is reaching a new level, that we haven't seen this kind of blatant political activism from the bench at the highest court. Is is that your sense? I mean, what do you make of that? It's tricky because we're in an age right now when we will see, for example, the Congress stonewalling something in the name of a principle when it serves the conservative interest. And then when, when it turns around and it serves the conservative interest to kind of flout the principle, they'll flout the principle. And I think we're seeing a similar problem at the Supreme Court level. And this goes with a lot of different issues, whether it is immigration or religious liberty or kind of go down the line. What what we're seeing again and again is the court has always been partisan, even though it's been rhetorically neutral. So it, it always has served, I would argue, a kind of conservative interest. And you can trace that back to things like you know, imagining that corporations are juridical persons. That's a that's one thing that was rendered by the Supreme Court about 120 years ago, and it has had, you know, wide implications. It's an incredibly conservative position. But it has always tried to remain, uh, in terms of its public relations, as a neutral body. And that is largely breaking down. Yeah, which which I think, you know, I can think of a, a great case study, an example where there seems to have been at on surface level kind of significant progressive legislation approved or supported. And you can see that in Congress, or you can see it in the kind of upholding of Supreme Court decisions. So I'm thinking of Brown versus Board of Education, for instance, or the Civil Rights Act of the 60s. So the 50s for the education, 60s for the Civil Rights Act. And what critical race theorists and legal scholars point out is that, you know, this is actually kind of the the end of a very long process. And so it seems to be progressive is actually the kind of earliest sort of iteration of a conservative break, that it's the least radical path, and it's gotten to a tipping point where they make this action which actually has very little teeth in it, as we've seen. And, and, and you know, the current, at least most of the members of the current Supreme Court have been, were part of a decision not long ago to kind of like, again, diminish the effects of the Civil Rights Act, certainly with the Voting Rights Act. I think it's worth noting that even, I, I, it's an affirmation of your your take, which is Conservative, not necessarily in a political ideology, but conservative in the sense that very slow moving, not kind of sweeping in terms of policy. But that seems to change in a kind of retroactive way where this conservatism is sweeping in reverse. Well, we're getting ready to have the census taken. And one of the things that this works in a piece of the, the public charge rule is basically saying that if you have come to this country and it is likely that you will be kind of a burden on the state, which means that you will be drawing from things like Medicaid, Medicare, from other types of support from the state for more than 12 months, you can be denied a green card. And so what does this communicate to those that are coming into the country? It, well, first of all, there are certain ineligibilities that already exist with regard to how one can draw from Medicare and Medicaid. It's playing into the idea that people are coming to the country with the express purpose of trying to be kind of leeches on the state. First of all, that's not why people are coming here, particularly for asylum, particularly fleeing from violence. And when they do, oftentimes what happens, in fact, is that they end up paying much more into taxes than they draw out in terms of state support. That's much more the rule. But the rhetoric right now is exactly the opposite. I want to pick up there with the rhetoric because, you know, the clear architect behind these policies out of the Trump administration is fellow late 30-year-old and fellow bald man making us late 30-year-old bald men look bad all over the world, and that's Stephen Miller. You know, he's clearly the mastermind behind this, and that's that's well documented and reported. His sort of racist ideology 
and sort of dehumanization that leads to this anti-immigration stance and anti-refugee stance that you're talking about trickles it, you know, I've, I've asked myself at times, like, how does it trickle up to Donald Trump? How is a guy who has very little interest in policy, doesn't see the big picture very easily, you know, how is he sucked into this? And the best I can make out of this is that Stephen Miller's sort of racist views, you know, appeals to Donald Trump's sense of this rhetorical question. What can I get out of it? So this was a you know, famous question that was posed to the generals and to Defense Department folks when President Trump has been introduced to the fact that we have American military bases in different parts of the world and other countries where we aren't paid by. We support those bases on our own because there are bases. And, you know, famously in South Korea, for instance, you know, Trump has asked, you know, well, why do we have all those people over there? The South Koreans should be paying for us. We should get something out of this, which leads me to this kind of Catholic observation, which is he clearly has no sense of what the purpose of government, what the purpose of public service is for, which is to protect and maintain the common good. Instead, I think Trump treats this country as if it were his own private country club. It's like Mar-a-Lago. You don't get in unless you can contribute, unless you can make me look good, unless you can pay. And he, he neglects the fact that that's not what a country is. And that's not what this country is, even in a non-Christian sense, as the country was founded, you know, in terms of its ideology, in terms of the Constitution. It still maintains something that parallels well and, and is supported by our Catholic Christian faith about the common good. I think that that's true. I want to go even deeper. Because if we look, for example, at the bishop's position, the USCCB, uh, the last time that they did kind of a big statement on comprehensive immigration reform, I think was 2013. But their statement from 2013 basically says that one of the things that they say in terms of their position is that they're interested in earned legalization, an earned legalization program that would allow foreign nationals of good moral character who are living in the United States to apply to adjust their status to obtain lawful permanent residence. I want to pick up on that phrase, good moral character, because I think that is what is happening in terms of the change in language and the change in focus on the public charge rule. Because when you start to talk about the possibility that these people might be drawing Medicaid or whatever, you're playing into a long-standing bias, a long-standing bigotry that says, oh, these are just lazy people who are coming here to get free stuff. And anyone in our American consciousness who comes as a lazy person to get free stuff is not a person of good moral character. So I think that it's not just the surface level that you're saying about Stephen Miller and the kind of bald-faced racism. I think that they're also doing a much more subtle sell that is trying to bring in people who I think might be brought up by and moved by this language of the bishops as an end run around them to say, no, no, it, it, we're, we're just trying to bring in the people of good moral character who just happen to be white and European. And that, I mean, so that that's really a, a marriage of the kind of Stephen Miller racism with a rethinking or a retreading of the language of the bishops that takes the teeth out of social justice teaching. Yeah, and this is not the first time we've seen this. You know, back during the discussions around the Affordable Care Act and the, the rise of the Tea Party and all this kind of stuff, some of the U.S. bishops adopted this, you know, fortnight for freedom, this idea of religious liberty being tied to what is, honestly, whether you agree with it or not, an argument that was calling for the effective application of, of one religious traditions or a certain population of that religious tradition's moral normative views on everybody else, which is deeply unconstitutional. It defeats the whole purpose of the separation of church and state and the freedom to exercise one's own religious tradition. I think you're onto something here, whether it's it's deliberate or unwitting, it's hard to tell, frankly, in this in this age of the Trump administration, because some of it is just, as you said earlier in reference to Miller, I mean, some of it's just bald-faced. It's, you know, no pun intended. And some of it is accidental, you know, kind of accidental social evils, as it were. But I think it's something we need to be very mindful of. And, and I really appreciate your highlighting the kind of misuse, the sort of jujitsuing of the Catholic social tradition and some of the language around Christian ethics that will be hijacked and has been hijacked to mislead and to misguide well-meaning, well-intentioned people who are looking for you know, how am I to feel about this? Is this the right thing or not? Well, and look at that in example of the the migrant groups that were coming supposedly to the border. And the the language was, well, the majority of them may be asylum seekers, but hidden among the asylum seekers are the bad people. And that's what we have to be worried about and, and aware of. 
and this happens again and again and again, where we see something that is designed to be very forward-thinking and protective of the vulnerable flipped on its head and used instead for protecting the interests of the majority. And we could we could talk about... Well, I mean, I'll just yeah. push back a little bit. I mean, I'm, I'm with you 100%. I just want to take issue with the interest of the majority. I think it's actually the interest of a very small minority. Mm. I'm not talking about like racial majority or minority. I'm, I'm talking about kind of the plutocracy, the people who benefit most from whatever, whether it's an ideological sense of exceptionalism, whether it's a financially driven thing, which... Let's face it, you know, if you're afraid and you're of kind of a like-minded concern about immigration at the border or something like this, you may be more inclined to watch something like Fox News and therefore tune into their programming and watch their advertising. I mean, there's, there's a vicious circle that's involved that's motivated and promoted by fear. And so I think that there's a financial interest. I think there's a power maintenance interest. And all these things seem to resist you know, the humble acceptance of our call as Christian sisters and brothers to embrace the common good. It's going to be like a cliche. It's almost a tautology for me to bring up, you know, Matthew 25. But I mean, if you identify as Christian and you're claiming to live by Christian values and you have even innocently, you know, or unwittingly, you embrace a sort of popular understanding of this country as a quote unquote Christian nation, then all the more reason why you need to be welcoming to all sorts of folks, regardless of what they're capable of or what you, and I think this is the key, the key here, what you personally or your group, however you identify, gets out of it. And this is, you know, how we're going to be judged. Jesus makes it clear, right? Whatever you've done for the least among these, you've done to me. What you haven't, you know, guess what? So I've got news for you. Are you a sheep or a goat? That's what it comes down to, and the choice is yours, frankly, right? The choice is mine. And so are we seeing the bishops speaking up on these sorts of things right now? Some are. Yeah, some are. And you've seen this surface a little bit. It's not, it's not broken through in the, you know, what we call the sort of secular media or kind of mainstream media. But yeah, not enough. I think there needs to be more concerted effort. You know, I'll just say, I'll just leave it at that from my vantage point. Well, and, and so I think for right now, uh, this would be a good place to leave this and to just say that we're, we're kind of in prayer about this issue. It's not a finished issue. The fact that the Supreme Court has removed some of the limitations on the public charge rule and allowed it to kind of move forward towards implementation doesn't mean that the story is done. And so we'll, we'll certainly be keeping an eye on it and we'll be bringing the issue back to you when it's appropriate. But for right now, you're listening to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalton here with Dan Haran. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with Dan Haran. Every couple of weeks, we get together to talk about issues and politics through a lens informed by our shared Catholic faith. The Iowa Democratic caucuses were held Monday evening on February 3rd, but the results, which were expected to begin being shared within a few hours of the event, were delayed and delayed and delayed. Officials announced that the Results would not be made available until later on Tuesday, February 4th. Chaos and confusion have ensued in the meantime. Due to some scheduling restraints, we're recording this episode on Tuesday afternoon, February 4th, and as of this recording, the Iowa Democratic Caucus results have still not been released. We had originally intended to discuss the results, consider the effects of the candidate finishes, and speculate about what this means going forward. Instead... We're left to scratch our head and join the discussion about the very nature of Iowa caucuses, examine what we know about what went wrong, and to consider what this means for Iowa and the country more broadly. To put it simply, if this upsetting snafu is any indication of what we can expect in the coming nine months, it's going to be a very long, exhausting, and frustrating journey. Dan, where should we even begin to unpack this? I'll tell you where I began. And that is, sometimes you learn from your mistakes and sometimes you don't. And I'm very proud to say that last night, I have learned from earlier mistakes, which is, I had a sense because the news uh, organizations and the anchors, I was watching the ABC News uh, stream and kind of following the returns and the, and the pundit talk, waiting for there to be some kind of results revealed. And you could tell after a certain point, it was somewhere between 8.30 and 9 p.m. Central Time, so we we're in the same time zone as Iowa, that people were getting really antsy and confused because they had clearly expected to get numbers in sooner. And so the kind of punditry air-filling 
you know, just <laughs> talking about whatever was going on longer and longer. And even the anchor started getting uncomfortable. And that's when I realized something's not right here. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to spend another half hour. And if nothing comes of it, I'm going to turn it off and I'm going to go to bed. And I haven't done that in the past. I have these, you know, usually around presidential elections, it seems so significant that I just can't pull myself away no matter how little new information is being presented. I'm just listening to these talking heads talk about absolutely nothing to fill airtime. You know, in 2004, I was up to like four in the morning. That was the bush Kerry race. You know, it was so close all the way to the end. I remember, you know, four years ago in 2016, a similar sort of thing. It became pretty evident. I didn't stay up to see the final call. But it became like statistically impossible for anything to change. And so I'm like, I need to just go to bed right now. And so I'm, I'm just happy to say on a personal note, I learned from that mistake. Now, I woke up this morning expecting to see some news. And the news that I saw was absolutely nothing had changed over the previous night. And frankly, as you, as you just said, here we are. It's, it's a little after two in the afternoon on Tuesday. Nothing has changed still. And there's a lot of consternation. And frankly, you know, we had set the themes that we were going to talk about the other day, and we just thought this would be something, you know, we'd be talking about something, as you mentioned, very different. I don't know. I've got three thoughts about what the implications are, and, and maybe they're worth considering. One is the question raises its head yet again, should Iowa, which is as a state itself, as an individual state, not in terms of gender, class, race, uh, immigration status, and so forth, as representative of the United States as some other states, Though I have thoughts about that. In isolation, that's a fair critique. Should it be the first? Should it have this kind of outsized weight? That's one thing. And therefore, if not, does the caucus system get thrown out? Is the caucus system itself tied to Iowa? Is this problematic? The second thing is, you know, technology usage. The thing I, I was just talking with some colleagues this afternoon on the way before coming here, you know, the thing that's absolutely mind-numbing to me is that you've had four years, states. You knew about the Russian you know, meddling, you knew about the vulnerability of electronic systems. And it sounds like this app was really kind of thrown together or built on the cheap or something. And of course, listeners, this will come out a week from tomorrow. And so you will hopefully have more information than we have now. But it sounds like the excuse that the Iowa Democratic Party is making is there was some kind of technological snafu. It was not, you know, malicious interference, but it was something of a technological sort. And then the last thing is kind of where I am right now, and I think many of us are, which is just if I had hair to pull out of my head, I would be doing so. I'm just the anxiety around the symbolism of the election getting into its official season with such a debacle does not bode well for well, the next nine months. And so let me let me pick up on that. So part of what the Iowa, the charm and mystique of Iowa is the kind of folksy process, right? Like this is democracy at its finest. This is, they're going to go physically into corners. You can actually meet and have a corn dog with the candidates, all of that. And the problem is, is that they kind of mixed this kind of folksy veneer with this notion of, and we're going to have cutting edge technology to deliver the results so quickly I, I'm not sure that folksy works in 2020. Okay, so this is, um, I'm glad to see there's already divergence, so our listeners can enjoy us hash some things out. I actually think it's one of the most compelling reasons to keep Iowa first. And and the same is true with Nevada. I, I think the caucusing, you know, particularly in the early states, is, is really important because, here here's my analog, right? I think that caucusing in a state like Iowa is to the NCAA basketball season and playoff March Madness as big Super Tuesday states like California and so forth or a Texas or something are to NCAA football in the bowl system. Okay, so let me unpack that. The NCAA basketball system, though there are some things that make some schools have a better advantage than others, technically speaking... Every Division I basketball team, through their conference or through a wild card or through something, has an opportunity at the beginning of kind of the championship season to make it into the NCAA tournament. There's a set number of, of slots and different conferences get different allotments, but the winners of those conferences get a buy-in and this sort of thing. And so it really is, though you might be a Duke or a Villanova or a, a Kentucky, nevertheless, you can be some small podunk you know, regional school with, with a D1 program, and you could go all the way. It is theoretically possible. Loyola Chicago did it a couple years ago, all the way up to the Final Four. It can happen. 
the old bowl football system was, you know, you had these kind of major teams and it was always going to be an Alabama or a Clemson or Auburn or something like that. And so the, the parallel is I like the system set up where anybody can, can have an impact. And you do that with this very politically attuned population. It's a smaller population. It's a manageable size state where politicians can come in who may not have the resources, may not have the name brand, may not have the, the finances. And I think of 2008, 2007, 2008 with Barack Obama, or you might think of, you know, some of the reports I saw last night and even today is that Amy Klobuchar, for instance, who's been unable to break into the top four of the, of the candidates in the Democratic Party, has been able to gain some ground. She's been on the ground 76 times during the season, you know, has really connected with folks, has made her case, doesn't have the resources, doesn't have the name brand, but might be able to etch her way in perhaps to the top three and whenever we find out the results. So there's something about it. You know, they call it retail politics. You call it folksy sort of in exchange. I think it's one of the rare, you know, kind of situations where the future president of the United States and all those who aspire to that have this opportunity to be in people's living rooms and to actually talk with them. I think so. In America, we have a lot of idiosyncratic practices around particularly the presidential election. And so you'll hear Democrats still talking about the fact that Hillary Clinton in 2016 won the popular vote, which is a great data point, but absolutely useless in terms of the system that we have where a president is not elected by the popular vote. I think that because we have these systems that actually have a lot of influence that no one really understands or, or most people don't understand how they work. So I think the relationship between the popular vote and the electoral college is one problem that we do a horrible job, even though it happens every four years, to try and explain. Totally agree. I could not tell you for the life of me how a caucus generates its final tallies in terms of who gets what delegates, especially since I keep hearing about the fact that oftentimes it'll come down to well, we have more people, even to the point of maybe 30 or 40 more people standing in a corner for a candidate, but we're going to flip a coin or we're going to draw a card. And I keep hearing about these results that kind of get overturned or – or and I'll be honest with you, I've been trying to understand and I still don't understand how the process works – it seems straightforward. People go and stand in a corner for their candidate. Well, it's, it's more complicated than that. That's too. the problem. It's yeah. more complicated than the, that. The standing thing is what, you know, to, to your point about the kind of mythology of the American presidential process, that, that's part of the mythos. There is time for chatting and persuasion, and you do move into corners and talk to already declared, you know, f folks who are ca caucusing for a particular candidate. And so there is that kind of movement. But the official tally, and this is the only reason that we know we're going to eventually get correct numbers, is that there is a paper ballot where on one side you have your first choice, uh, you know, and if that candidate becomes viable, then you stay there. If they don't become viable, that means they have less than 15 percent of the support of the those gathered of registered voters. Then you can put you can move to a second choice. And that's included in there. Or at that second reallocation, you can opt out and say, well, my first candidate is the only candidate. I'm not interested in anybody else. And so then you just leave something to that effect. But at the end of the day, there, I mean, there there is a ballot as such. It's not just like a horde of people that are going to be counted like by a school principal or something, though that is the kind of visual image there. I, I will say this. I think, you know, your point about the Electoral College, I could not agree more. And counterintuitively, it's one of the reasons, and I have no vested interest in the state of Iowa. I've been there once for a week giving a, a series of talks. I mean, it's, it seems like a nice enough place. And the same is true about Nevada. I, I'm, I'm out in Nevada a lot more often for similar sorts of things, but I, I don't live there. I don't you know, I don't have anything to say, you know, any personal reason, like I'm from that state, they should be best. But if if we didn't have this kind of weird system where these smaller states that are not in and of themselves representative of the country, but as certain reporting has suggested over the last week or two, if you take all four of the first standalone states, and that is Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, and South Carolina, together they are exactly representative of the U.S. So that's worth noting. But the thing is, if we just relied on the kind of electoral system or on a national sort of appeal, then I don't know that any of these candidates would be spending time in these kind of states. Iowa wouldn't be a purple state. It would be 
maybe a red state or maybe a blue state, but there would be no kind of, you know, mobility there. There'd be no sort of malleability when it comes to the electorate. So I think there's something valuable, I really do, about at least in a couple states, the politicians have to go down and do this old person-to-person interaction, which, if you notice, the billionaires, particularly Michael Bloomberg, are not partaking in. I mean, mm. he thinks effectively, I'm, I'm not going to say he's going to buy his way in, but okay, he's not on the ground shaking hands, sitting in living rooms, eating tater tot, you know, casserole with, you know, people in Iowa. Okay, here's my pushback. Do it. So in in the kind of forming faithful consciences for voting, there's a point where the bishops say, in the Catholic tradition, responsible citizenship is a virtue and participation in political life is a moral obligation. Word. I think from everything that I've heard of the Iowa caucuses, it's incredibly difficult for those who are differently abled and incredibly difficult for those who are working, incredibly difficult for those who are single mothers to participate in this process. It is designed for people with a certain type of access and accessibility. And that, to me, despite the fact that Iowa has not a large number of African-Americans, all of those things sort of raise real issues for me about participation. That's true. And I, again, have no vested interest in this other than I think that the so-called retail politics are beneficial and actually serve the people of Iowa and other smaller constituencies well. Your point is well put, and it's something that's been raised. My understanding is that they've actually adjusted that this year, including having some caucuses meet at senior centers so that uh, the elderly or those who are other otherly abled are able to participate in the caucus. I think that there is still, you know, because of the limited time constraint, that's a concern. So I think what you're raising doesn't actually push back against my point at all. I think it's an invitation to reconsider how one you know, makes the caucusing available because it's it's by precinct. I mean, you could say this precinct is going to gather at this time on this day or at this point or, you know, have ADA accessible areas or however, or like they've clearly done, have moved into more accessible locations. So I, I don't see that actually as uh, as opposition at all. In the same way that I would say there, the primary system and the general election system is messed up in that we don't have a national holiday. The same thing you just named is true for everybody else. You and I, we work full time. We have to, you know, you have a family on top of it. I have community obligations. I still have to find time. And it's, you know, fortunately, I, I get up very early and it's one of the first things I do on election day. I, but But not everybody has that luxury. And so I'm deeply sympathetic, but I think that is, you know, it raises other questions not directly related to caucusing or about Iowa, and that is something like a national holiday and or early voting or extended voting and or compulsory voting like they have in Australia, which I'm a big fan of, that it is your legal obligation. For heaven's sake, the bishops seem to support that when they say it's your moral duty. I love the fact that you're a caucus booster. I've never participated in a caucus, so <laughs> but, I, I'm just... But clearly you see a value in the system. So then now my, my, my sort of final question to you is, 2020 Iowa caucus has a real PR problem right now. I think that if you were to ask the general public across the nation, was this a valuable exercise or was this a debacle? I think that, that a lot of people would come down on the side of this was terrible why do we even do this? And so, know, but, but, so, so, if, so if, if the caucus system is to survive this current moment, what does it need to change in order to actually become a publicly, and I don't just mean in Iowa, but I mean for all of us as Americans, a publicly viable and trustworthy system again? The answer to that question is you better ask Iceberg Lettuce. I have no idea what that means. Exactly. So if we take the general population's perspective about particular limited events, historical anomalies, such as E. coli found in iceberg lettuce such that, you know, you can't find Caesar salads in any restaurant, can't find iceberg lettuce in any grocery store, and you were to poll, as you're suggesting, the general population right after the announcement of E. coli-infected iceberg lettuce, is this a good or bad thing? Is it a debacle or not, as you framed it? Obviously, they're going to say, no, this is terrible. This is bad. It's it's immaterial. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. That's not the point. There are points, and I mean, heads will probably roll for this. They ought to roll for this. But it's a structural systemic issue around the technology, around the lack of planning, the lack of testing. I don't think that because the caucusing itself, and it was interesting watching both ABC and then reading the New York Times and Washington Post this morning, the reporters who are and listening to The Daily with Michael Barbaro from The New York Times this morning, 
There were reporters embedded. There were people all over the place live at these caucus sites, and the caucusing worked. It's about the tallying and the communication and the verification of the numbers is the problem from these 1,600 precincts back to, you know, the official office. But but it's analogous to the iceberg lettuce thing. You know, let's get a phone call out there. Let's poll people. Well, it doesn't give us any information. You know, I would say any actionable information. <laughs> does that like, iceberg lettuce thing make sense now? It, it does make sense. I, I'm, I'm hesitant because at the end of the day, we have to trust the process. And I think that we're at a point where there is genuine threat to the electoral process. Like there is there is substantive general threats in specific locations and also nationally to the electoral process. And because of that, there's an erosion of trust in the electoral process. That's dangerous on many levels. Yeah. And so if we can avoid having additional I take the iceberg like if I'm hearing you correctly, it's a non-problem that if you were to ask people, they would say is a big problem. Well, no, I don't think it's a non-problem. I think, let me put it this way, there are problems. But I don't think the way the question was originally phrased to this imaginary poll of the general populace answers the, anything that's useful in addressing the problem. The problem is about technology and planning and the use of technology and the openness to exactly what you're saying, this threat by, by means of technology for interference in our democratic process. So, I mean, I guess there are several questions that that seem to be conflated in, in our conversation at times where we're bouncing back around several questions. One is, is caucusing as a method of democratic participation a worthwhile and worthy exercise? And I hear you saying absolutely yes, it is. Correct. Yeah, okay. that's my view. I think I don't have any problems with caucusing as such. In fact, I admire the dynamism of it and actually the the ownership that's required both of individuals to educate themselves because it's not a secret ballot. Your neighbors, your family, you know, I, I heard an interview with a guy who was caucusing for Joe Biden and his wife was caucusing for Warren. It was an interesting conversation. You know, they have to talk about this. She's standing on one side of the gym, he's on another. And the in the the journalist asked, so what's going to happen if Biden isn't viable and you have to relocate? And he said, well, I'll probably go to Warren. So you can imagine so, you know, those are two very different candidates, but in that family dynamic, that couple's relationship, he at least was convinced that maybe his wife has made good arguments on behalf of the candidate she preferred. And if that candidate was viable, he was going to join that side. You don't get that when you're walking into a school, a gym, and you're in a little cubby and you, you check with a marker, some scantrons, or you pull a lever in secret behind a cloth. So I think... Again, I, I don't have any problem with the practice itself. I think actually there's a lot of benefits to it, but it's only feasible in smaller states with smaller populations. Now, that's one question. Another question is the representation issue. And, you know, in, in around the caucusing, I think there are things like the technology and communication and the accessibility that is worth addressing, but doesn't impugn caucusing as such. The other thing is the representational issue. And one then could make the case then like make Nevada first where there's more it's not as white as as Iowa but then again I'm very comfortable with the fact that if we take as a whole these four states South Carolina Nevada New Hampshire and Iowa then they are actually not a bad way to kick off the remaining 46 states process okay so I think that you've convinced me about wow. about the value of caucusing but but here's here's my takeaway is that it happens once every four years and in this particular case, this year, 2020, it was a swing and a miss. Yeah. And that's a problem because if it only happens once every four years, you have to make sure that your A game is there. And they didn't. They didn't. Agreed. And, Agreed. And, Shame. And that that right now, given all of the other threats perceived and actual to the electoral process, we can't afford very many more swings and misses because people are going to particularly those that are looking at the Democratic primary and wanting it to be as transparent a process as possible, given some of the history in the last two or three elections. We need to have a sense of trust because there needs to be, even for those people like me who aren't Democrats but caucus with the Democrats, we want to make sure that there is some kind of way for us to find unity moving forward in a candidate and not feel like there has been flim-flam that has salted the results or put a thumb on the scale. Yeah, I hear you, and I agree wholeheartedly. I mean, I'm, I'm furious at, you know, the way that this thing kind of played out. 
Yeah, it, it really is is terrible, and it lends itself to exactly these kinds of questions about not only transparency. I, there's an irony here too, because part of the snafu is occasioned by the fact that the Iowa Democratic Committee was committed to releasing all the numbers at each stage, which meant more data collection rather than just the final totals of each precinct. That was where this technology was supposed to be helpful, that they can catalog each stage of the game and then provide the party and the nation with more information in an effort to be transparent. Who got the most in the first round? Who was viable? Who wasn't? How did people move from one candidate to the next? So, you know, the irony is that in trying to provide more transparency, they created this whole problem. And so, yeah, it wasn't well thought out, wasn't well thought through. My hope is, like me, not staying up to an inordinate period of time last night that you know, Iowa will learn from its mistake. My fear is, in addition to the the kind of shared fear about and anxiety around all the possible malicious interventions, is that, you know, a bunch of people are going to get swept up in a destroy the caucus, this is terrible sort of movement. And, and I think that's throwing the baby out with the bathwater. That's my opinion at this point. So I think that we've now kind of caucused this thing to its natural conclusion. David, are you going to come stand in my corner of the gym? I, I will, but but hesitatingly. <laughs> Only on the second realignment. Only on the second realignment, whatever <laughs> that means. And whether or not there's a coin toss, I don't know. But, uh, but with that, we're going to take a step away from any corner and take a little break. You're listening to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalton. I'm here with Dan Haran, and we'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm still Dan Haran, and last I checked, that's David Dahl. Every couple of weeks, we get together to talk about news, current events, politics, political activity, politics and political activity in Iowa, all sorts of things like you've just heard in the last segment. But here we are switching gears and looking at sacraments, which is really relevant since we like to look at all these things through a lens informed by our shared Catholic faith. This season, we've decided to take a bit of time in each episode to talk about the seven sacraments of the church. Last episode, we talked about the Eucharist. This time around, we're looking at the sacrament of confirmation. As we've mentioned in the past, confirmation is treated very differently across Christian traditions. In fact, confirmation is treated very differently even within the Roman tradition if you're a baby or a child or a grown-up. For example, though, if we look to our Eastern Christian brothers and sisters, for example, in the Byzantine Rite, confirmation is referred to as holy chrismation which is not just an expletive, holy chrismation, <laughs> and it's administered immediately after baptism. Churches in the Roman Rite typically celebrate the sacrament differently, making it distinct from baptism and Eucharist, and often administering it between the ages of 12 and 17, somewhere between junior high and high school. With all these differences in practice, David, we have a lot of things to talk about. Where shall we start? Well, first of all, for those that haven't thought about this in a while, when we're talking about confirmation, what exactly are we talking about? Because I've heard that it involves oil. I've heard that it involves classes. I've also heard that some cases involve getting slapped. What are we talking about? Are we talking about the caucuses again? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good question. So uh, this is going to be difficult. I'm just going to lay it out for you listeners. I'm going to lay it out for you, David. Confirmation, as many sacramental theologians and historians have pointed out, is in effect in the Western Church, the Latin Church. That's, you know, it's not exactly the Roman Church because there are 23 Eastern churches in full communion with the Church of Rome. And so they are Roman Catholics as well. They are Roman churches of other rites, the Syro-Malabar rite, for instance, the Melkite rite, etc. They are fully Catholic, but of a different rite. And uh, like the Byzantine, like the Eastern Orthodox, they celebrate a unified sacrament of initiation. So that's one way that the Eastern Church and we in the Latin Church of the Roman uh, Church uh, are differ. And the way that theologians sometimes talk about it in the Latin West is to say that we have a sacrament without a theology. In other words, people don't generally know, including theologians such as ourselves, struggle at times to articulate what is it we're doing exactly, which is the crux of your question, as I understand it, and what is the range and what is it about, and you're right, there's something to do with oil, has something to do with the Holy Spirit, <laughs> there was some tradition of the bishop, I guess, tapping the cheek of a, a newly confirmed individual, that is not necessary or part of the right, but to back up, we need to really get back to the 7th century. And in, in the Western church, it wasn't until Christianity exploded in population size 
that the bishop who had been the one, the, the primary pastor, the primary teacher, the local ordinary of a, a faith community, welcomed new Christians into the Christian community and did so in a singular rite of initiation. So like the Eastern Church continues to practice, we in the West actually for a long time did the same thing. So whether you were an infant or a child or an adult, once you were received into full communion of the Church, you were baptized, confirmed, and received communion. Much like if you've ever been to the Holy Saturday Easter Vigil service, when adults are brought into full communion of the Church as catechumens and, and, and come in seeking baptism and the rest of the sacraments, it's all, it all happens in one kind of fell swoop. So Nathan Mitchell, who's one of the, probably one of the greatest 20th century American theologians, taught for many years at Yale Divinity School and, and St. John's in Collegeville, a, a great historian. He wrote an article back in, I think it was in the late 80s, um, and it was titled The Dissolution of the Rite of Initiation. And I've always loved that image because it summarizes well what, what's going on here. In truth, in the Western Latin Church, we Roman Catholics typically, that's why I emphasize typically, celebrate them as if they were three separate sacraments, as opposed to three sacramental moments in one rite of initiation. And part of that, going back to the, the 6th and 7th centuries, is, is because the bishop, there were too many people coming into the church for the bishop to attend to everything. And so there was a delegation to the presbyters and to the deacons to some degree for the celebration of these sacraments spread out over time. And then the last part, what the Eastern Church calls Holy Chrismation, which we too in the Latin West talk about chrismation, that just means to be anointed with oil, in this case the oil of chrism, is something reserved for the bishop. So it's sort of the, the sealing, the closing of the rite of initiation. Now, one question that I have is, when, when we're talking about these Eastern Rite churches like the Melkites and, and others, are they still celebrating seven distinct sacraments, or do they collapse those three sacraments down into one? No, no. I think we would all agree that it's, it's seven sacraments with one rite. Okay. R-I-T-E, rite. Yes. Okay, so you have the, the, the rite of marriage. This is the, the procedures for it, the, the ritual of it, etc., and so if you think about it, that's why, you know, Mitchell calls it the dissolution of the singular rite. And yet it was Pius XII who restored the rite of Christian initiation of adults even before the Second Vatican Council. So that, you know, this was done in the liturgical cycle. It was celebrated in public at the Easter Vigil. And it was a singular rite, but we recognize three sacraments, right? Uh, that's the best answer I can have. The, the, the other thing, too, is historically it's worth noting that the kind of finalization, though in Lateran IV, back in the 13th century, there's an acknowledgement of seven sacraments, though later in the 13th century, theologians like Bonaventure and Thomas Aquinas, these great doctors of the church, acknowledge seven distinct sacraments. It's not really into the Council of Trent where that's absolutely clarified, and that's as a result of the Reformers' sort of own revisioning what a sacrament is. Now, if I think about what goes on in baptism, what changes in the believer, I think I have an idea of that. If I think about what happens when I sit down and am praying and am participating in the Eucharist, I think I have a sense of what goes on in that. I will tell you that I have no idea of what happens in confirmation in terms of spirituality, ontology, or even the way that I'm supposed to think about myself or my children as they go through this rite. So you're hitting the nail on the head when it comes to this phrase I used earlier that we theologians oftentimes say it's, it's a sacrament without a theology, meaning that once it's pulled apart from the other two, if you try to think of confirmation as a discrete moment unrelated to Eucharist and baptism, then it really starts to make little sense. What is the purpose of this, especially when we have such a gap? In the Latin West, we say children can receive communion the celebration of the Eucharist, once they reach the age of reason, which is give or take seven years old. That's because of our over-intellectualizing, thanks to primarily Thomas Aquinas, where in the Eastern Church, you can receive communion, you're communicated, as it were, as an infant, received fully into the Church, confirmed in everything. That means one-year-olds can receive the Blessed Sacrament, two-year-olds, three-year-olds, four-year-olds. You don't have to be seven, because there's a difference in how we think about sacramental life and our relationship to this liturgical world. In the West, and again, Thomas is the one who makes this most clearly, he prioritizes the intellect over the will, which means he says understanding both in God and in the human person is prior to 
the choice to love, affectivity, uh, you know, embrace relationship, you know. In other words, he says you have to understand in order to love. Whereas others in the Augustinian and Franciscan tradition will say you can't understand what you do not love, that love proceeds, love takes the primacy as prior to it. And so because the intellect as, as the primary focus won out in the West with the kind of, you know, significant influence of Thomas Aquinas' thinking and worldview, that's where we get this age of reason business, that we have to sort of test our second graders to see, do you know the difference between this piece of bread and that piece of bread? What's significant about it, right? And the truth is, we're talking about something that's, that's a divine mystery. You know, seven-year-olds don't understand it any better than 82-year-olds. You know, who are we kidding? Whereas in the Eastern Church, this idea of being entered into the communion— you know, communion, not just receiving the Blessed Sacrament, but communion through baptism, you know, in the celebration of the Eucharist, is there's a mystagogical dimension to it, which is that we participate in something we don't yet understand fully, but we reflect on the experience in prayer and in community. The mystagogy is this idea of unpacking the mystery that we live and celebrate that is God's gift to us. And so there's an ongoing dim- kind of dimension to it. Whereas now, in, if you go back to the West, what we have with this separation of the rite of initiation and placing the confirmation, the last piece of the rite of initiation sort of later in life, because there's a vacuum there, there isn't a good theology for it to stand on its own, we tend to project meaning into the vacuum. And you see this a lot in parishes. You see this in the average person's thought in the pew, including the, the kids, the teenagers who are going to the classes you mentioned earlier. You see it in priests. You see it even in bishops because the theological richness isn't there because it's not meant to stand on its own. So what people project into the vacuum more often than not is it's a rite of passage. You're a quote-unquote adult in the church now. That is not what confirmation is about. And so though we have, and there are theologians who are working on this, trying to make sense of the separation of the rite of initiation in these three sacraments so spread out, there are efforts to try to make an understanding that is easier to kind of grasp and how it fits into the larger liturgical life of the church and sacramental kind of experience of one's faith journey. But as it stands right now, it's very confusing to people. And so it's seen as you know, there are detrimental consequences to this. One is that, you know, it's seen as a rite of initiation, um, not in a good way, but like a rite of passage rather than a rite of initiation. And that, you know, in some ways, particularly when you're dealing with teenagers, they see it as their graduation from religious education, which totally torpedoes the idea of lifelong ongoing catechesis, reflection, education, mystagogy. Like I'm done now, there's nothing else for me to do. Yeah, and and I, I think that also... Because we're part of the Abrahamic tradition, we could think of something like a bar mitzvah. And a bar mitzvah has that kind of you are now an adult in the faith kind of thing, a bar or bat mitzvah, I should say. And that's, and I'm hearing very clearly you saying that that is not what confirmation is supposed to do. And that in the Eastern Rite examples, that's not what it does. That basically it's all one one rite of initiation with sort of three steps. You open, you unlock the door, you open the door, you walk through the door all at the same time. Here, you unlock the door, then seven years later, you open the door, and then maybe five or six years later, you walk through the door, and then you get on the other side and go, why did it take so long? Yeah, I mean, there's that. I mean, that's, yeah, it's, it's sort of an experiential, it's like a phenomenological reflection on it. Yeah. And, and that's, that's one of the challenges. You're exactly right. You know, there, a lot of kids may, you know, you have Catholic kids in school with Jewish kids, and the Jewish kids are turning 13, and they have their bar, bat mitzvah, and it is a rite of passage of sorts. I mean into a different status within the community. That's not the case with confirmation. And this is another thing that's kind of confusing to a lot of Catholics, which is, well, am I a full member of the church? And the answer is yes. In baptism, you are. But then we also have, you know, these kind of requirements, as it were, and almost a, a cursus honorum, this idea of you have to do one thing before another before another. So oftentimes couples who want to get married in, in the Catholic church they'll be required to be confirmed. Or if you want to be a sponsor of baptism, it's required that you're confirmed, which I don't have any problem with in general, except that then again, it now seems like a hoop to jump through as opposed to the completion of one's initiation into this body of Christ. And so the chrismation, the sealing of the gift of the Holy Spirit is what's going on here. And that's exactly what the the bishop says, you know, you know, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
And that chrismation is a sealing of the Spirit. It's a completion. Maybe this is the best way we can think about it in a, a theologically robust sense. It's a completion of what is begun and continued in baptism and Eucharist. And it's not a final thing. It's not a graduation. It's not a rite of passage, but it's, it's, it's part of something that has already been initiated, has already begun. Is this a missed opportunity? Because I think that uh, oftentimes exactly the dynamic that you're talking about is what I have heard about, and that is teenagers kind of get through this, and then they're kind of cut adrift. Like there's there's really nothing else for them to connect to in terms of the the, the next steps of the Catholic tradition. And so I think what I'm hearing you saying is that because there's not a robust theology there, because it is kind of, forgive my language, kind of an orphaned an orphaned practice in the right. It doesn't communicate anything that we would like it to communicate, and it communicates a lot of things that we're not intending it to communicate. Yeah, I think that's a great summary. I mean, again, it's not a malicious thing. It's not like in the sixth century. It's very organic. I mean, this is why, again, people need to understand that theology and sacraments and the rites of the church develop over time. There's no stasis here. This is not the way we do things, and when we talk, for instance, about the sacrament of penance, you know, reconciliation or confession, that has evolved over 2,000 years as well. How we experience today is not how it was experienced in the 4th century and so forth, or in different places around the world. So with confirmation, here's my proposal. You know, and actually some bishops, some very theologically astute bishops in different dioceses in the U.S. have actually restored the singular rite of initiation and have called for the baptism, communication, and a confirmation or chrismation of infants. There's nothing prohibiting that from being done in the U.S. It's something that, or anywhere in the world, the local ordinary can do. And I think that would open up the possibility of an understanding of initiating into something that is lifelong and ongoing in the way that our Eastern Christian brothers and sisters do. It's also something that the Bishop of Rome could restore. You know, but the problem is then people ask, well, well then what does a bishop do? <laughs> You know, right now a bishop, they only, the only time they typically meet a bishop is when they come around for confirmation or something like that. You know, people say, well, well then, you know, doesn't a bishop have to do it? And the answer is no, absolutely not. Notice every Easter vigil, it's a valid confirmation when the local priest is delegated by the church to confirm. That's not a sacrament reserved for the bishop. The only thing a bishop can do sacramentally that a priest can't do is ordain another priest. To me, it's a mystery. I think it requires a kind of paradigm shift. It requires a kind of cultural adjustment. But I think, I, I don't know of a better way, you know, with all due respect to our sacramental and, and liturgical colleagues who are trying to make the best and, and try to educate folks and come up with resources to situate confirmation within the larger rite of initiation and in the life of the church as we celebrate the sacraments today. I think the best answer is to, to go back to our sources, that resourcement of the, of the 6th century, and a full restoration of the right of Christian initiation. And that would mean, you know, you don't have this awkward thing, too. If you're a minister of, of Holy Communion, you know this. You know, you got a kid who looks like they might be in second grade. Maybe they're in first grade. Maybe they're in second grade, but haven't received communion. And, you know, are you giving them communion? Are they not? Are they coming to receive communion? Are they not? You know, down to the infants who are part of this faith community, instead of this kind of segregation of the congregation— you know, as I'm fond of saying, and you know this, the Pope is no more Catholic than the most newly baptized baby from this past Sunday. And yet we kind of create these hierarchies and separations and categories of, you know, not just who is in and who is out. That's the role of candidates and catechumens as they're journeying into full communion. But once you've entered into full communion, you know, we still have this weird sort of kind of partiality that's playing out. So my advised sort of theological, hypoth not hypothesis, suggestion, is that we, we move in the Latin West to a restoration of the, the single rite of Christian initiation, celebrate these three sacraments as they had been for the first five centuries of the Church. Well, if we do that, then folks will know that they heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> they may have heard it here first, but I'm, not, I'm by far not the only one talking about this. <laughs> so as, as we're coming to a conclusion, I want to ask a, a, a question that's unrelated to this topic, and that is the next time that you and I sit down together to do a Francis Effect, will we be in Chicago or will we be in Los Angeles? I think we're going to be in L.A. Yeah, Anaheim. So those of you that are listening, if you have a chance and you are on the West Coast— in late February, please do come and see us at the L.A. Religious Education Congress at the Anaheim Convention Center in Anaheim, California, because we'll both be there and we would love to see you and also answer your questions in person.
Stay tuned on the social media. We'll let you know about who we're talking with and where we are. And until then, Dan, thanks again for sitting down with me. You've been listening to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with Dan Haran. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. The Francis Effect podcast is produced by Sandberg Media. We record the show at the William Adams Studios here in beautiful Hyde Park on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. The opinions expressed on this program are our own and do not reflect the position of any institutions with which we may be affiliated. We have production space courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. They're not responsible for the content of this program, but they're wonderful folks, and you should look them up at zygoncenter.org. That's Z-Y-G-O-N center.org. We also want to give a shout-out to our friends at Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They're also not responsible for the content of this program, but they gave us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we do appreciate it. Check out their good work at saltandlighttv.org. We're supported by listeners like you. If you want to join us in this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. Not only do you get the warm satisfaction of a virtuous deed well done, but you also unlock bonus content from our episodes. Again, that's patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at francisfxpod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. Likewise, our website is francisfxpod.com. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing the Francis Effect at francisfxpod at gmail.com. That's effect spelled the English way, E-F-F-E-C-T. If you're joining us here for the first time, welcome. We've got plenty of episodes that you can check out from our first five seasons and part of the sixth. Thank you so much for listening. 